Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for the reminders that you've given us this morning of your great love and your incredible power and your unceasing commitment to be involved with us even when we push that involvement away. And we are grateful. As your people, we come to worship you as we follow you. We come to see what your word has to say to us and we ask you to take this time and change us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. First John chapter 3 verse 1 is where we'll be shortly, but while you're turning there, I just want to ask you, have you heard of this Facebook? Hello? Have you heard of Facebook? Now, for you old people out there, who think Facebook is like the best thing around? Our teenagers left that years ago, all right? There's multiple generations in the past for them. Um, but Facebook is a unique thing, I think, in that, well, when I first jumped on board, and I think that was in roughly 2009, I was almost immediately reminded of how many people in high school I really did not like. And for some reason, the ones who would have nothing to do with me in high school wanted to be friends on Facebook, and that should have told me something about it. But here's the deal. One of the reasons that I find it hard to let Facebook go as much as I want to every day is that it still allows me the opportunity to keep in contact with people that I have no contact with, and until Facebook came along, I had no contact with some of them for decades. And so I come to it, and uh, there have been a number of different contacts that have been made there that, that have been disturbing to me. And one of them involved a guy who was a young man in the youth group that I served when I was in New Mexico way back in the early 90s. And he was a young man who uh, actually started coming to church because of a friend of his. He was not really a church kind of guy. I don't really remember if his dad had already died or was in the process of a terminal illness, but uh, I do remember that as he came and began to work his way into the life of that youth ministry and into the life of that church, that we, we could see relatively quickly that he was a troubled young man in a variety of contexts. But in the process, we began to notice that he... Uh, I don't think that we led him to the Lord in that particular context, but somehow he came to know Christ and we began to see him grow and it was a great thing. Now, he always had the rough edges and just in case you need to hear this, I'll go ahead and say it, uh, those kids with the rough edges are always welcome in our church and our youth group, all right? Because the kids who have the rough edges are the ones who are going to be cutting your tires if they're not in church and not really. They're not going to do that to you, but uh, we all need Christ, right? Not just the good ones, but all of us need Christ. And so uh, this kid was that kind of kid. And we watched him grow, and it was a kind of a great thing. And then when we moved away from that church in New Mexico, we lost contact with him. And so enter Facebook. And he sent me a friend request several years ago now, and 
Um, it was under this guise that, uh, hey, hadn't thought about you in a long time. Um, just need you to pray for me. We are going through some issues. His mom had just been diagnosed with Alzheimer's and uh, his dad had been gone for a long time by that time. It was not a good time for him. And so I responded to that and said to him, I certainly will be praying for you. Uh, we understand the struggles of those and that particular kind of disease, and so we'll be praying for you. And then I offered him a little bit of um, counsel and tried to encourage him to take his struggles to the Lord himself also. And here's the disturbing part. His response to me was, you know, I appreciate what you're saying. Just pray for me. He said, God and I have not been on speaking terms for quite some time now. I want to let that sink in for you a little bit, and I want to take us to a fundamental question as it relates to church and church life. Why do some people fade away from Christian community and Christian living? We all know those kind of people that at some point had real vibrant life in them. They're ongoing life with Christ was alive. It wasn't just a church thing. It was real for them. And we see them grow and then somewhere, somehow, we turn around and they seem to be gone. And when we do make contact with them, they have wandered away from Christ and from his community. Why is that? Maybe a question that we need to put right alongside that one, especially for those of us who are leaders in churches, but also for all of us as church members. The question that goes alongside that is, how can we help people who are in danger of fading away? Just because those people are sitting around you today is no guarantee that they'll still be in here or in any church six months from now. How do we help people avoid just slipping away in the Christian life. Maybe an answer to that comes from an experience that I had uh, in Turkey, or at least it points us to an answer that I had in Turkey. Uh, In 2009, that summer, I had the opportunity to go to Turkey and on a tour of the seven churches of Revelation there are just ruins now. Some of them you can't even hardly find, even with a tour guide. But at one time, those were centers of the organized church in the early 2nd century and late 1st century, those places where where Christianity was centered. It had moved already out of Jerusalem and gone up north and into modern-day Turkey. And so John writes the Revelation, and he addresses in those early chapters these seven key churches. So I had the chance to go to those places, and as I stood on the ruins of those places, I was taken with this question, how can a place that represented the heart and soul of the community of Christ known as the church, how could it be so vibrant in one era and be totally ruins in another? That's a good question for the American church. But the question boils down to us. And so as we're making our way through the countryside of Turkey, we go to a a region called Cappadocia. And you can go and 
Google Earth this and you can see some pictures of what I'm talking about. Uh, but Turkey, for the most part, is kind of like Texas, all right? There are some areas that are, they're just, they're just you just want to sleep through them while you're driving, okay? That's far west Texas. There are other places like the hill country, and this is in Turkey, that are just vibrant and lush and all of that, and there are places like we have here. So uh, in this particular place, it was kind of in an area that was, uh, well, it was historically a volcanic area. And the rock formations that are left there from ancient volcanoes is a very soft rock. And so what's happened is the people who live there have found a way to tunnel into that soft rock and they make their homes there. Have you ever wondered what it looks like inside of an anthill? You should go to Turkey because you can see what it looks like because they've found entire cities. There's one that I was uh, noticing online that we didn't get to see because they've discovered it since I was there, in 2014 to be exact. And there's three and a half miles worth of tunnels with rooms that connect to that underneath. It's a city that's underground. And so as we were there, I had no clue about any of that kind of stuff or even that part of church history. And so we make our way through the countryside, and it's barely pretty. There's enough to keep you going sort of. But we kind of go up to this mound that looks like a giant anthill. And they get us off, and they march us over there. And we begin to snake our way through that mound and around the outside of it until finally we find ourselves up on top. And what they told us was that that was a place, what was left over from volcanoes in the past and the ash and all that kind of stuff, that monks went to during persecution. And they went to that particular hill because it gave them a vantage point that they could see the countryside, but it was that soft rock so they could live entirely encased within that mound. I was amazed at what I... I didn't know that kind of stuff was there. We went from there just a few miles down the road to another series uh, of dugout places in the, and we found... Uh, paintings on the wall. It was where they would go to do their worship. And it's ancient stuff. I didn't know any of that kind of stuff existed. And while I was there and I was beholding all of that kind of stuff, it drove me back to a fundamental truth in the Christian life. And that is we in this generation are not all there is in the church. There have been those who have come before us and we hold a trust in our hands and we better be faithful to that today or somebody else from another civilization is going to come back and visit our ruins when it's all said and done. One of the ways that I think we avoid that gradual fade away in our own Christian lives is to be amazed every once in a while. Maybe a better way to say that is that we ought to live lives that are marked by amazement. And that brings me to 1 John, where we have been studying now for a while. And 1 John is written from this guy who was a disciple of Jesus. His name is John. And we know that he was a fisherman, and Jesus called him out of that, and he followed Jesus around. And then after the resurrection and after the ascension, John was one of those early church leaders And he writes this little letter called 1 John to a group of people who are in danger of fading away in their Christian commitment. 
There have been false teachers who have come in. They've pushed their way in. And so what we find is John writing to them, instructing them and encouraging them. And he says to them, don't give up. And in that, we find these words. This is, actually, I told you to go to chapter 3, verse 1. I just want to go backwards two verses and begin reading. And here's what he says in verse 28 of chapter 2. And now, little children, abide in him, that is, in Christ. So that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink back from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. And so John writes into this, and he, we've highlighted in here four different statements of purpose that he makes. One of them is, I'm writing this thing. This is in chapter 5. I'm writing this, or four, uh, I'm writing this so that you may know that you have eternal life. And he addresses that in this little passage. Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. It's a marker. But he also wrote, as we saw last week, he says, I write so that you may not sin. And so he says to these young Christians, don't fade away, abide in Christ. And in that context now, we come to the text for the day. It's the first part of verse 1 in chapter 3. I'm not even going to get into the whole thing. We'll get into that next week. The next few verses there are full and rich for us, but he says in chapter 3, verse 1, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God, and so we are. Here's some help. If you're the one today who is in danger of just slipping away, and it's very possible that you might have come in here today and you go, okay, you know what, I'm going to give it another shot, but I, I just, I, I remember those days, you know, following camps or calling retreats or revival meetings. It, it just seems so real, but today it doesn't seem real at all. If that's you today, I just ask you to stick with me for about 15 minutes, which for me means 30, 40, whatever. <laughs> Here's what John says. First of all, he says, look. Our English translation lets us down here some. So I ask you to bear with me a little bit as we go through the next 10 minutes or so. One of the things I used to do with our kids, and for those of you who still have children, let me encourage you to do this from time to time, okay? Get in their head and mess with it, okay? Um, I got this from my dad, and so we just kind of carried it on through the generations. And that is, uh, as our kids were young and we were driving around, every once in a while I would just lay on the horn and just wave off to the side. You ever do that? Um, it didn't matter what was going on with our kids. They'd be in the middle of a conversation. They'd be singing with the radio. That would be Lauren. They, they could be doing any number of things, but if I laid on the horn and just waved like that off to the side, what do you think they did? Immediately, who is it? Now, they hate me for that, but I'm good with that. John does almost exactly that here. It's a honk and wave that grabs their attention. It's grammatical the way he does it. And the construction of this sentence is such that it interrupts this flow of doctrinal encouragement. But in the middle of it, he throws out a honk and a wave, and it forces all of us to go, what? what? Now, in our translation, the English translation, it just says, see. Yours may say, behold. 
The word here is written, it's, it's a command, it's, it's an imperative. It doesn't fit in the flow of what's going on here, but he writes it in such a way as to shock them and to seize their attention. Let me say it this way, because I, I think we all fall into this. Have you considered the speed of life these days? Now, I, I have tremendous respect for those of you who still have young children at home. For those of you who have teenagers, I have some respect for you, but mostly I have sympathy for you. I know how packed your lives are. I, I see people coming and going and trying, you know, trying to find themselves in the course of the day because they've just got so much and it's just all packed in. And with all of the incredible uh, gains and technology that we have, we have made life hectic at warp speed. One of the things that that does to us is it sets us up to need a honk and a wave every once in a while, to stop us, to force us to step back just a little bit because here's a spiritual truth for us. Our warp speed in living desensitizes us to the intricacies of the Christian faith. Now, I don't say stuff wise very often. Let me tell you something. That's a wise statement, even if I said it. Our warp speed living desensitizes us to the intricacies of our faith. And so what happens is we kind of degenerate in our faith to these big, broad truths that we all love and we love to hold. I'm not saying that they're not right because they are absolutely right. They are truth. But what happens is we begin to opt for more of a cultural Christianity than a vibrant Christianity. And there is all the difference in the world between those two. And just for the record, those people, those friends of yours who are not Christian, they don't want your cultural Christianity. It's readily available They just don't want it. But they cannot and will not deny when there's a vibrant faith for them. And so our warp living sets us up, I think, for a more generic Christianity. I don't think that's unique to us. I think that's always been the case. Here's one of the places that I figured that out. Okay, Slow it down, and when you slow it down, you begin to find there are truths that you can hang on to, that you can chew on, that you can just roll in your spirit for days, and God feeds you from those things. I'm the physical specimen of all physical specimens. I know that. Okay, I hate to draw attention to myself, but... Uh, it's hard to believe, but I used to do a lot of running, okay, like marathons, and uh, it was not unusual at all for me uh, a, number of, a number of years, number of years ago um, <laughs> to run 50, 60 miles a week. Um, and here's what I learned when I was running. Way out in West Texas, oil fields of West Texas, all kinds of stuff on the road out there. I didn't know that. When, when you're driving, you try that or this, this week as you travel back and forth down the highway, okay? Those lines that are in the middle of the road, you know the ones I'm talking about? Most of the time they're painted white. Okay. You know those lines, right? 
You, you go fast enough and those lines start to look like there's almost one of them or they start to look like there's only maybe you know, 18 or 20 inches between them. If you're going 75 miles an hour, those things are trucking past you, right? But if you slow down to a 12-minute-a-mile pace, which I might have run back in the day, you're going so slow that those lines in the middle don't look like they're this far apart. They're, they're a long ways apart. They paint them that way on purpose. You know what else I decided or discovered while I was running? People throw all kinds of stuff out of their cars. Especially when I was in the oil field, I'd be driving around out there and I'd find a wrench over here or a water cooler over here. And when I was driving at 75 miles an hour, I never saw that stuff. I never saw the animals that lived just on the side of the road. But when I was running and they would jump out and scare me, then I'd go to like 11-minute pace. You see stuff when you slow down that you miss when you're in warp speed. That's just simple truth. So John builds in a grammatical honk and wave and he says, stop. Well, actually, he doesn't say it that way. He says, look, behold, see. So I want to encourage you, if you don't get anything else out of what I say today, and this is really just the first part into it. If you don't get anything else, I say, why don't you commit yourself to slow down this week and listen for the voice of God? What might you find when you do that? Well, I think you're going to find some amazing stuff, and that's what we find. Actually, he says next, we should be astonished. Be astonished. First is look. Second is be astonished. He uses a rare word here, and that in itself caused his readers, I'm sure, to go, oh, okay, hang on a minute. Let's remember, John is a fisherman by trade before Jesus comes on the scene, okay? Now, for those of us who are Greek students or used to be Greek students and survived it long enough to get through it, here's a good truth that we will remember that you all need to know. John was a fisherman. And when we started studying Greek at the earliest stages at Wayland Baptist University, they took us to the book of 1 John to do the translation. You know why? Because he was a fisherman and he wrote like a fisherman. Okay? Now, Paul, on the other hand, he's got this big seminary doctored up kind of guy. And he writes at levels that we still, some of us go, hey, you don't get that. And then if you really think you're good, go to Hebrews. Not John. John says, I'm just going to talk like a fisherman. And so the translation is a lot easier as we get to this. But here, John Ah, he throws a twist in, and it has to catch our attention. See, look, he says, behold. And then he uses a single word that it takes us three English words to get back. What kind of is the word? It's only used seven times in the whole New Testament. Two of those are going to be in a verse that we'll see just a second in Mark. John uses it here, and it literally originally meant of what country remember, we're moving towards astonished because that's the flavor of the word here. But the original use of this word means of what country? Case in point, uh, Kevin Howland over here is our children's minister. Y'all uh, were exposed to him a little while ago. That sounds wrong, but that's sort of right. Um, when Kevin first got on the scene here, I went into his office one day and 
Uh, he's trying to get it all set up, you know, with one leg. And so he's working in there, and I walk in there, and he's got this rug on the floor. And it's obvious that it's not an East Texas rug. It's not camouflaged. Um, it's really not even a Texas kind of a rug. And so we start talking, and I don't remember if I asked him or if he told me. I think I made some kind of comment. And his comment to me was, because my mind was going, where's this thing from? Okay, which is the flavor of this word we're talking about. And his response to me was, I got this in Afghanistan when I was deployed over there. And that, that, that's right, okay? Now, I'll just go ahead and tell you the whole story. It's in his office because his wife won't let him have it at home. I have two rugs from Turkey in my office for the same reason. All right? But here's the deal. I walk in, I see it, and it's obvious like that. This is not from here. This does, it, it's not that it doesn't belong. It's just that it doesn't fit the, um, the moment, so to speak. That's the word, he says. So now we have two stacked up grammatical tools and John says, look, behold, stop and be astonished. The word originally was of what country, but it came to signify astonishment often based on size. Spencer, look up Mark 13.1, if you will, and I'll show you. Mark 13.1 is uh, where Jesus takes his disciples. It's a great chapter in Mark's gospel. But it starts off as Jesus has his disciples and they go to the temple area. And it says this, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. The word that we have here in First John that's in Mark two different times is the word wonderful. It's astonishing. And that disciple is looking at these great, huge rocks that have been used to build that temple. And he says, aren't these wonderful? Uh, how astonished. I'm amazed at what I see, is what he was saying. So John stacks this up back to 1 John chapter 3. Matt, uh, Spencer, we're going to Matthew eight twenty-seven next. So the disciple sees that. He's amazed by the size of those stones. But here, John uses this as Matthew did. Not shouldn't surprise us because in Matthew 8, 27, John's one of the character actors in that scene. And it's where there is a storm out on the sea and Jesus goes asleep underneath. You remember the story? And they're freaking out, these professional fishermen, because the storm is so bad that they're all going to drown. And they call him and Jesus comes up and he calms the storm. And he looks at the disciples and says, what's your faith? What's going on with you guys? And then verse 28, 27, 27 says this, and the men marveled saying, okay, what sort of is the word here in 1 John and here? What sort of man is this? Now it's not about the size, now it's about the quality. And those disciples who have already been with Jesus and heard him talk and watched him do miracles still reach Points of being amazed. Who is this dude? So John is astonished by what? What does it say? See what kind of love. So now I've got to stop here. Now you see why I didn't try to get multiple verses, right? 
John's astonished here by something that regularly captures his attention. He is, uh, what's the right way to say this? John is focused on the love of God. Now, it's a good time to stop and remind us of our Christianity and how we do things. And back to the danger that I was talking about earlier. We can get so into the culture of Christianity and we come to church and we say the words and we sing the songs about the love of God. And just we could, we could probably spend 15 minutes just going through people just jumping. This is my favorite song about love as it relates to God. And, and there's so many of them that they just litter the landscape of our church music. But how long has it been since you've been astonished by the love of God? I mean where you stop and you go, wow. More than any other New Testament writer, John refers to the love of God. More than any other New Testament writer. As a matter of fact, some guy, it's probably a Ph.D. student somewhere living in a library who had nothing else to do. But whatever the case, he did this study. I was, I was intrigued by the study because he ran this check on the gospel. It's not just the gospels, the entire New Testament. And he tracked how many times each writer talked about or used the word agape or one of its derivatives. You ready for this? John uses it 44 times in this little letter. The second, that's, by the way, the most in all the New Testament, 44 times in this little letter. He's obsessed with the love of God, clearly. Because the second place in the whole New Testament and the writers as they use love relative to God in our lives, the second place writer is John. In his gospel, where he uses it over 40 times there also. The next one on the list is Paul in Ephesians, who uses it some 20 times. Here's why I want you to get that. John not only says stuff here to get their attention, he's coming from something that got his attention. And for him to talk more than anybody else about the love of God doesn't necessarily seem to fit what we find in that gospel where we find that he's one of the two sons of thunder who wanted to call down fire to consume a group of people because they just didn't do life the way he wanted it to be done. John is obsessed with the love of God because John is covered in the love of God. So he says, stop. Look and be astonished, amazed at the love of God. Well, that's not exactly the way that he says it. So let's bring this to a close and make sure that we get it right. The way that he says it is not be obsessed or amazed at the love of God. Be amazed at the love that the Father Now he uses a term coming out of a Jewish background where they were very careful not 
to cross lines and treat God with any lack of respect. They often would not, I mean, regularly would not even say the name of God for fear of being irreverent in that. That's what part of what got Jesus in trouble with those people because he started talking about God as the father. John, the great student that he was, now says, consider, stop and be amazed at the love that the father has for us. Well, that's not even really the way he says it there either. Because it's much more personal than that. Be amazed at the love that the Father has given to us. So it's not some theoretical love that somebody could write about now. It is the experiential love, Father to children. Do you see God that way? As a father and you as his child? My granddaughter is two. She, she, I've, I've heard her say it. I've seen her on video say this. Something about Sophia. Sophia, daddy. Sophia. Sophia. I, I, I don't know what Sophia is. Except my wife tells me that it's some princess program or kids show, right? Every little girl wants to be a princess, right? That's really the language here. John says it is an incredible thing to consider that God has made it possible for us to call him father because we are his children. I want you to be amazed at that. And if you're here today and you're thinking of just kind of sliding away from this whole organized religion thing, let me just say, slide away from the organized religion thing, that's fine. But don't abandon the Father who loves you in doing that. Because it's not about embracing a religion. It's about being embraced by a Father. And you know what? I know in churches especially, there are are many people in our world who have trouble hearing about the love of a father because their father was just a scumbag and didn't love right. So let me just remind you that God never intends to live down to the example that your father set. He always pulls you to himself. He is the example of what a father should be. John says, be amazed. Let's pray. And as we pray, I'll just ask you, can you call God Father? Have you reached the point where you've responded to the love that he's shown and the invitation that he gives to be his child? If your answer to that is no, I want to encourage you with every bit of energy that I have to turn to him. And if you don't trust that at this point and you want to talk about that, I'm good with that. Let's talk. We can do it here. Invitation time, certainly you can come. We encourage you to do that. If you want to do it in private, send an email, phone call, whatever, we'll do that. But don't walk away from the love, the incredible love that God has given to us. For those of us who have already responded to that invitation from him, I want to encourage you this week to stop and ponder 
Listen for the love of God as he surrounds you, his child. And if you find yourself here and you're slipping away, you can think of days in your Christian life where you are closer to God than you are today, then why don't you come home? That's what this invitation time is for, for you to do business with God. And so, Father, we give it to you and we ask you to do your work in our lives, in our hearts, in our spirits, even now. In Jesus' name, amen.